to go. Uh, we're outside, so apologies, <laughs> but the pandemic is not over, but we're going to be safe. So if you hear birds or cars or people running from each other, you know. Squirrels, too. Yeah, all sorts of uh, <laughs> natural things. Hopefully we'll see. We'll uh, explain who. Yeah, there's a famous squirrel that lives around here. <laughs> <laughs> He's well hung. So <laughs> hey. I used to have a poster of a squirrel i remember that poster yeah. yeah and i thought it was fake but it was like a it was a squirrel standing on you know his two feet and his testicles were hanging <laughs> and it said like hello ladies it's a it's a you know 14 15 year old boy poster you want that in your room you know well apparently it mimics real life because there exactly. is one i always thought it was like photoshop but <laughs> they have it was not photoshop they have giant testicles they do squirrels. have giant testicles yeah wow <laughs> I've never really seen one. Maybe we'll <laughs> today. We'll <laughs> yeah, that's, 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 that's I'm really excited to be out here <laughs> for many reasons. One we'll of bring which out the peanuts <laughs> soon, you know. Yeah. All right, we have an artist and two PhDs to discuss the size of uh, squirrel <laughs> testicles. All right, that's that one. I'm gonna let you do the introduction today and uh, welcome our guest. Yeah, Harim Khan, assistant professor at CSUSB. I'm gonna correct uh, doctor Harim Khan, right? Yeah, I mean assistant professor, yeah. doctor. But you know, I've I've noticed that. Professors, like, I'm not sure if you've, uh, in your experience, you've seen that. They prefer to be called professors rather than doctors. Mm. Um, I, you know, I don't, I tell, so my students, I tell them they can use my name, Harim. Yeah, but same But they here. never do. But I'm referring to, like, colleagues. Oh, in general? When you write emails or um, dealing with, you know, yeah, some Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I guess I do use professor. The professor, you know, yeah, yeah, professor yeah. or... But uh, so Harim Khan, uh, like I said, she's an assistant professor at CSUSB. And I wanted to get this right, you know. Uh, uh, I mean, she's a, a colleague of, of mine and a good friend. Uh, and her current research, I want to read this, you know, to get it sure. right. And, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, examines the burgeoning South Asian beauty industry in Southern California, which I think is uh, very fascinating, focusing specifically on the entanglements of race, labor, and the Economification of cultural aesthetic practices. Is that? Yeah. Say that, say that one more time. <laughs> 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 well, Alex, so yeah. it's, it's basically, you know, when I first started grad school, I was interested in, you know, perceptions of beauty sort of very generally um, because, and also how they're societally shaped, right? So like, Growing up where I grew up, there were certain ideas around beauty that, you know, circulated and they kind of got stuck in my head. And so I was really and I and it was something that I was like, this isn't inherent within us. Like we sort of build these ideas around beauty and what we think is beautiful. That's sort of what I was really interested in. And then grad school came and then it was like, wait, no, you have to do like all these specific things. You have to read, the, you know, and, and it kind of got a little, I guess, um, I wasn't as exploratory as I wanted to be. I kind of felt like confined to a discipline and confined to certain ways of thinking. And um, but anyway, that led me to sort of think about beauty in the context of like commodification, you know. So I looked at advertising in India. So I did some research in India and I looked specifically at the you know, the booming skin lightening industry um, and then how those ideas sort of circulate. And then more recently, my work has been on the threading industry. So threading salons, I was an ethnographer. I was hired at 
basically three different salons and I did my research there as a front desk receptionist. Which is really so interesting because you were, we were talking, uh, I think, a couple of months back and you were saying that during the pandemic, it's threading is, is, is a very um, delicate subject, yeah. right? Because um, uh, the people performing the threading are holding the thread with their mouths. So right, what? right. So do you know... Uh, like what Okay, I know that you do it for eyebrows, okay? And I... I don't understand. I know, obviously, you know, women who've done it. Um, and my mom is an electrolysis. Mm. So I <laughs> I've been, you know, pretty versed in like hair <laughs> yeah, removal like this yeah. entire field. But I didn't know your, what, what is like your flossing and thread? Like, uh, what do you mean it's in your mouth? You basically, it's like you have two intertwined cotton threads. And you basically roll them across the face. And so the fric like the friction, it pulls hair out from the root. So the idea is that it's 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 a uh, it's a uh, it's they say people say it's Ayurvedic and so it has a long history of you know being one of the early technologies of hair removal, um, and it's mostly done for eyebrows. Like, but for me, for example, I don't do eyebrows, but I do my face. Okay. So in the in COVID, you could still get eyebrows done and maintain a kind of you know appropriate social or not even distance. you can't not no distance is impossible but at least you can both wear masks but if you're doing any other part of your face mm. it has become you know um and i'm actually like those salons were open for a brief period until this current lockdown so i know that industry is being really hard hit right now and so um you know it's 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 going to be interesting to see what it what shape it takes so you worked as like a you know to do your research you're like incognito as the front receptionist i was i did let them know what i was doing oh, okay. <laughs> yeah Otherwise because there there's be then right? there's no difference between an anthropologist and a spy <laughs> 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 right hey. but yeah we're supposed i mean you're uh, ethically you let them know ev like even if you're doing a critical study you know you should share that I'm doing this research. And, and what are you looking for, like, when you're so in the setting? So initially, once it starts, you're just recording everything. And not recording, but, like, writing down every observation. Every You do go in with some, you know, In terms of, questions. like, the demographic, age, where body parts, right? Or yeah. So, okay. so, for example, like, there were two salons I worked at. One was a little more, I guess, you could say... Um, it was it was priced higher. They catered to a more multiracial demographic. They had a lot of white clients coming in, people, um, and also people who were willing to pay more for services versus more local salons where I would go, where I'm like, I'm not going to pay more than X amount for this service because I know I've grown up doing this. I and sort what's of the price range? So like at for a for more a salon expensive that you would go salon to. yeah at yeah. a more expensive salon it could be up to about 12 to 15 dollars for eyebrow threading um but because of it's actually deregulated by the state so unlike if you go to get your hair cut or any other kind of service that's that's um under the purview of the board of barbering and cosmetology people typically have to have licenses you have to go to school. threading is not one of those skills so that's why you've seen a boom in the industry where there isn't a Anyone lot of overhead, yeah. And so that's part of the politics that I'm looking at, sort of what, you know, the growth of this industry in a deregulated market, how do workers actually sort of manage that as well as business owners? But when I was doing my research, 
I had comparisons. So I was at like a more posh salon and then I was at a salon that was, you know, considered to be more mom and pop and kind of looking at those differences. Who's coming in? Um, how are they treating workers? What do they expect from workers, right? If you're going into a, ser into a service where you're paying three, four times the amount you could find anywhere else, you're going to expect workers to kind of conform to a kind of professionalism, right? So it's like you're going in for this service the environment also matters, right? So your workers have to look and be presentable and look clean and look. And so part of that is a racialized sort of thing I'm looking at where it's like, how much of that is also shaped by who's doing this labor and who's doing this service for you? So that's part of the, but you know, actually threading is, it's become sort of my focus because it's my dissertation. But I'm broadly interested, again, in that initial question that I came in with was, you know, how does beauty sort of operate in the, in the realm of economics and in the realm of sort of commodification? And so threading is, I hope it's just one part of that larger piece where it's like I can get back to looking at other manifestations of that, you know, whether it's this circulation of Ayurveda, like that's become really, or it has always been popular, but it's become especially popular in like wellness industries i yeah. don't know if you've watched that series y which series the goop series with gwyneth paltrow oh i've not so is it on like netflix or yeah and it's not i don't i don't think any of the episodes get into ayurveda specifically but it's this whole wellness industry which has become especially living in la it's funny that you mentioned that because my hairdresser she she's getting her certification uh, mm -hmm. for an ayurvedic uh practitioner that's oh what she's yeah. doing yeah Right, and and the rise of like or uh, popularity of functional medicine and this holistic approach to the body. It's like people are being drawn to, um, I guess, practices and services that are not as like clinical. You know, like if people don't know Ayurveda, like how would you describe it for? Um, that's interesting. It's like a, <laughs> you could say it's like you know a centuries old sort of. It's a wellness practice, and so it is. So it's it's linked to medicine as well, and in South Asia and India specifically, um, kind of the rise of um, these holistic technologies where you your body wasn't seen as like different parts. Like I feel like Western medicine, right? Sort of generally speaking, you go to a certain specialist for to treat. You it's know, like a more holistic approach. Yeah, to it. and Ayurveda exactly, and it kind of. It's also, you know, there are elements of it that are sort of mind-body focus or the connections between sort of not just how your body functions, but um, sort of the, the spiritual aspect to it. Um, and that's certainly how it's been commodified. You know, it's like it's you if you want a, a deeper connection to the self, right, if you want to really emphasize wellness, it's not just about being able to function. It's about being able to also um, have a quality of life that allows for that to happen. So I think LA has been an interesting place to explore these questions. Oh yeah, for you sure. know? especially the West Side. Yeah, right. I mean, right. it seems that there has been, you know, tying it into like functional medicine and all these things, and where Western medicine, like you were saying, you go to a specialist, whether if it's you know for your foot, for your kidney, for your sinuses, whatever it may be. Um, and there seems to be this trend that kind of people who have the, um, you know, the financial stability to be able to seek out these specialists, you know, on their own 
are now going out and saying, hey, I'm going to go get blood work done and investigate what I need to do, you know. Uh, do you see that trend? Because you're saying you're looking into the commodification of all these mm-hmm. uh, industries as well, where the kind of digital aspect of, you know, apps or podcasts or all these, you know, uh, avenues for you to find out more about these things and have people relay or analyze you know, your your health or beauty and mm-hmm. all that and kind of sell it back to you in yeah. a way? Like, do yeah. you see that these things are tying together yes. as a result of it? So I'll give you an example. And this is not even tied to my research, really, but it's just so I've also been shaped by a lot of, you know, I, I, I as a researcher guy go in, I initially was really critical of, of course, skin lightening products for obvious reasons. Um, and also because I had a really personal investment in that struggle because of the ways that I was sort of positioned in my community growing up where it was like, oh, you, you know, um, you know, just uh, like that felt very personal to me. But it's interesting, like living here now and kind of, um, you know, being here for, I guess, six years now, um, I've been sort of also really kind of sucked into a lot of these cultures, not as a researcher, but also as a consumer. So, for example, functional medicine, there is a, a clinic that I was introduced to through a friend who has um, an autoimmune illness and, is, you know, wanted a more holistic approach to treating this. And so she introduced me to this place, you know, called Parsley Health. And at first it was like, OK, their membership fees are really high. You know, it's like a hundred and fifteen or something dollars a month. That's a lot. That's like a more, yeah. you know, it's like a gym membership. And they do all of that. So you are responsible for getting your blood work done. You're, you're, you're getting all of these sorts of um, uh, marker, or you're getting these markers measured that will tell you every little vitamin deficiency that you have. And there's a part of it that is, it absorbs you because you're like, wow, I didn't know that I could have access to every part of how my body is right and i think what sorry to cut yeah. you off but like i think what happens when you do get access to that because i've i've gone down this road too yeah. is that you grow kind of a distrust to the doctors that you were coming in contact with you know your entire life um, i don't know when you're young you do like physicals yep. and you know yep. as you're getting older you have more things to you know uh, keep keep track of mm-hmm. but for you to see the the data right broken down like okay vitamin k or d whatever it is and then like this is high this is low you know inflammation markers all that it's like you never you were never given it was like that was kind of behind the curtain right so now that you have access to it like Mm -hmm. you i mean if you're that type of individual you want to know more and you want to kind of be more in control of it right yeah that's that's that is the philosophy i think that they they rely on to set themselves apart from, you know, traditionally Western. And, 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 and the, skepti- the skepticism goes both ways, right? So even when you, when you talk to a doctor who's trained in, you know, Western science, like, they will be skeptical towards these functional medical practitioners for the flip reason. And so for me, it's, I've never felt very comfortable going to see a doctor, right? And it's changed. And, and, and I, I, I a part of me also kind of cringes that I've been sort of con- <laughs> like, converted. you know, I've convert- been converted to this really, it seems like a very elitist kind of, that's the other problem. Like if you want to take a sort of 
capitalist critique. Yeah. There is something really troubling about this being so niche. And it, it is accessible, but for whom is it accessible, yeah. right? It's for people who can actually, like, yeah. pay Because, I mean, I, th- I think that those fees, you know, maybe, like, 150, yeah. 250, I think there's different uh, uh, steps. But that doesn't include the, the lab work, exactly. right? Which can be, exactly. like, thousands of dollars. And all the supplements will tell you the that you need yeah. to take. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, th- I, I, I think having that kind of information is, is so fascinating mm-hmm. right and, and when you see it like you were saying yeah. like the for the first time you see you what kind of deficiency you have and then you get uh, a printout of the things they should not eat right yeah um but it's also i think very problematic because it, it gives you i think uh an idea an understanding of an idea of, of your body that perhaps is not accurate mm. right because the average is it's just it's it's not as accurate perhaps for you than for me yeah right so for yeah. example maybe if your vitamin a d whatever is lower or lower for you that may be normal mm-hmm. but then if you see the blood work and and you're below that like threshold then yeah. you panic and and and, and, and right. maybe you invest more especially in this kind of um, setting you invest mm-hmm. more in, in the clinic or, or in the supplements and, yeah. and completely changes the way that you approach your day-to-day life mm-hmm. including your diet you know like your routine yep. yeah we expect there to be like a universal kind of level everyone should be on but it could differ from you know exactly person to person. yeah and they rely on those sort of universal like uh, when you get your reports you're going to be within a range right and when you're at so i think that is what sustains the industry right because if i mean for me it worked like i saw my vita- i had really low vitamin d my doctor said, this is going to change how you're going to just wake up a different person. It worked. Like, mm-hmm. I, not a <laughs> it wasn't that transformative. Um, vitamin D is great. But, like, I think it was just so low for me that... But it's incredible that 30-plus years, I never knew that. Like, I never thought to do that. It was because a doctor told me, hey, why don't you just take this panel that I think is interesting. But what's also kind of, you know... The questions I've talked to you about this, Esteban, before, but, you know, it's interesting when you talk about health, the kinds of questions that people would ask, right? So typically, you know, what are you asked when you go to see a doctor? You know, you're, you might be asked to just send your labs over. But with this place, they'll ask you, you know, how are you sleeping? Yeah. Do you dream when you sleep? Uh, what are you eating? Uh, you know, like those questions. How's I've never your like love life? Yeah, or your all of that. House life, whatever. Exactly. Maybe, yeah. What are your stressors? Yeah. Um, and do you meditate? You know, all these yeah. things where I'm like, uh, no, no. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> listing off all the things do I. Do you think I it's do. like? Do you think it's like? Uh, like if you're in a court, that would be like leading the witness. It's like knowing <laughs> knowing the demographic that's coming in. You know, like yeah. that's like that spiritual aspect. Like, oh, this is the questions you want to be asked. So it's like. You know, when I go to a physician and I have, you know, a paper with me of questions to ask um, that they're not asking, I have to kind of do my own like investigative Mm -hmm. process. Um, You're kind of always like belittled to uh, relay information that's kind of on their turf. They're like, oh, you Googled something. (laughs) You know, it's like, right. Yeah, I fucking Googled (laughs) it. It's my fucking body. Like, I want to find out like what's what's happening, you know. But there is such this, you know when i go to uh you know a western medicine uh clinic you know there's like oh don't do these tests that are telling you what to mm. eat don't like what not to eat you know it's like 
meanwhile, they're kind of running their own test in yep. their own way. Uh, but going to these clinics where they they're kind of kind of doing a holistic approach, uh, I don't know. It kind of it's like y there has to be a perfect balance between the two, and that won't exist unless you're kind of mm -hmm. taking the responsibility. You know, like yeah. I always, you know, people want to go and get like a second opinion. Yeah, mm -hmm. but like who y you need to kind of pick and choose you're going to what type of doctor you're getting that opinion from. You know, everyone's right. going to have their own approach and own perspective. Mm -hmm. My difficulty is like the rigidity of how they view and how they practice medicine is in one lane. No one's taking multiple lanes, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah, right. And I mean, it's it's it's. It's also, you know, what kinds of, I guess, even, so I feel like I'm becoming a brand ambassador for Parsley Health, <laughs> which is not, you know, I'm just... Not an affiliate <laughs> or yeah, a sponsor. Not sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so this, you know, it's, uh, for me, it's like, I definitely have issues with, with this kind of model, too, because of its exclusivity. And I think they do, they, their marketing is exactly that they're not in one lane, right? That they are, they are like almost revolutionary for at least for people in the US. So they draw a lot a lot from you know uh what are maybe traditionally considered like eastern ideas around health and wellness or like ayurveda, right? So like the number of times I've been told, you know, like you know having golden lattes with turmeric, right? From these things. You know, it's like <laughs> interesting like they're telling you can me buy and your I'm mix? like yeah, <laughs> for like $50. That's the other thing and that's like the part of it where it's like you go there while you're waiting for this is pre-covid while you're waiting for a doctor there's a there's a beautiful cafe it's gorgeous just the design of the space where you immediately kind of and i, I have to challenge myself there i'm like wait yeah, this is you working like it. I mean, yeah. you're like, oh my god this right. feels great and what do you do when you're kind of like for me i'm conflicted because i'm like i don't theoretically i feel like i shouldn't trust you all because there's something like a little you try to sell me yeah, yeah you're trying to and it's working and then when it's working <laughs> is when i'm like sort of really checking myself where i'm like as i'm buying this you know coconut pudding for like <laughs> 55 dollars you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> chia coconut yeah, pudding exactly <laughs> of course how could i forget you go there too long? <laughs> <laughs> lying to i know you seem time. to know a lot <laughs> i mean it's it seems like these things like i mean um is it successful because and is it growing because there is a market for it and i'm being able to sell this to a demographic who's interested in you know self-care and health and preventative measures um or is it because it's working because hey like i'm actually uh seeing a success rate with improving people's you know conditions whatever yeah. it may be a part of me wonders if there is like for me, it's like, okay, I've been thankful to have pretty okay physical health my whole time, but my mental health has kind of fluctuated, right? With like grad school. And that was never considered in the purview of health for me. I was conditioned to think of that as something that was just, you know, a part of life. And yeah. so I think what is really compelling to me as someone who always kept those spheres separate, like mental health and, or not even considering it health, yeah until the past decade or so, I think what's compelling about these kinds of conversations around health is it brings that together. So it prioritizes anxiety or stress in a way that 
makes me feel like, oh, I can reclaim control of something that I had kind of just given up mm-hmm. having any sense of like ownership over. Like, And so I think there is something, you know, I, I don't think it's also like spiritually disconnected either. I think there is something there that they have readily picked up the language on. They know they how to talk to about it, yeah. right? They know what language to use. They know how to market it. And so I think there's also a kind of like neat, yeah. And I think these physicians who are partially, they graduated from Harvard, from Yale, from uh, UCLA. Yeah. So it's not just a random person, right. you know? Right. So they have that, those credentials behind them to exactly. actually. Um, and some of them have been trained. So they know, it's like, I think language if if someone is telling you something in a convincing way yeah. that you maybe didn't have the words for before and they're, you know, like when someone says something, you're like, wow, they said it so well, I feel the same thing. I didn't know. I feel like sometimes I have that <laughs> experience with them where I'm like, wow, that's exactly how I think I was, you know, feeling about, you know, like my biggest struggle right now is figuring out my sleeping. Like mm. how am I sleeping? And we've talked about yeah. this, you know, and that's like my project. And thinking about sleeping in the context of wellness is really yeah, interesting yeah. to me, you know. You know, it's also like when you're when you're going and saying, hey, like I'm experiencing like headaches, whatever. Okay, they're like, they do the blood work. Yeah. They show you, you know, this this chart and they're like, oh, you know, if you take this now, you're going to be balanced. Like the, the headaches are going to go away. You're like, fuck yeah, you yeah. know. And you want that miracle right. supplement. You know, we, we do all want, th- like, mix Eastern and Western as much as you want. Like, nowadays, like, you want the fast track if you can get it. But that doesn't exist, right? But that attempt to, you know, cure yourself or al- alleviate some symptoms with one supplement is such an attractive thing. And you'll return and return and return again, you know, attempting to, you know, resolve this issue, yeah. right? like you were mentioning like it it isn't just one thing it isn't like oh this one thing is low let's balance it out and i think you were mentioning before that's what's revolutionary now because we can't uh neglect the fact that certain remedies you know from the east have existed you know and have been proven to be successful for centuries right that can't compete with like a lab created western like supplement of it Mm-hmm. right um so bringing it together with these like multi-lane multi-approach and you're saying like oh sleep is one nutrition is one you know how you know you're managing stress mm-hmm. you know what you're eating all these things that c- come together and it seems so simple and so like intuitive but then it's been separated you know in terms of dealing with health and medicine yeah. no exactly and it's you know and feel like there couldn't have been a better word than wellness to really capture this because it's so what do you what are you measuring yeah. Yeah. you know what is what is wellness like who, who like how do you measure wellness within yourself and it's such an like all-encompassing sort of thing that's also so individualized that i think it works for this kind of industry yeah. where it's like oh okay you have a lot you have full agency over your body but then you're also conforming to what they're telling you so it's like you know wellness now has become defined by places like parsley health or gwyneth paltrow (laughs) or like you know like whoever so what did you i mean you were also mentioning you're looking at the cosmetic side of it yeah so how does that tie in 
Yeah, so that that was my initial project. So that was I was actually in India doing this research, and I lived in Bombay for a little, and I wasn't able to get you know super in depth in this work, uh, unfortunately. But I was looking at how beauty and ideas around beauty are encoded into visual, in this case, advertisements, right? So for example, with skin lightening products, yes, they're trying to sell a skin lightening product. I and mean, what that's it like, I don't, oh. like, I don't know what this. Yeah, so have you, uh, have you heard of Fair and Lovely? or no. fair and handsome. So these are, so the skin lightening industry. If I got any lighter, like I would be, yeah. <laughs> I mean like it reminds me of Sammy Sosa. I'm not sure if we mm, talked about it. Yeah. Was like this baseball player, you know, like back yeah, in the day. Steroids. Yeah, but he's, co- he, I mean, he was Dominican, mm-hmm. uh, black man. Now he's l- just like pale. Just Is like he really? Like whiter than you are. And uh, it's yeah. because of these uh, creams. Like so what right. is a cream that's literally changing the pigment of your skin? So it's so there's variation. So there's bleaching creams that Jesus. actually have like hydroquinone and these toxic agents, and and those are really popular too. Um, but what I looked at was the skin lightening industry and or the skin lightening creams that I was looking at were were interestingly marketed as different from bleaching. So they they market were marketed as not having toxic ingredients mm. they were a, a natural way to get lighter skin get the skin that you that is actually yours that's mm. not sort of contaminated and that's not polluted it's this really mm. interesting you know it, it it fits into wellness where it's like yeah. no go back to who you really were you know go back to what you looked like when you were before you know um when you were in the end of thought so i mean what does that mean like are they saying are they saying you were a different shade like when you were younger like what what changed so that's a part of the logic around these is that the it's 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 not so much saying that take these creams to become white Mm -hmm. right so skin lightening is not about becoming white it's about just getting a little lighter so that you are considered to be either more beautiful or more successful it's also tied to class right so like you know um and in india it's a completely also a very different historical context where you had the caste system and you had you know different ways in which color sort of played out in society so skin lightening creams in the contemporary moment have sort of taken this idea that lighter is quote-unquote better and marketed it so that a, it's different from the dangerous stuff out there. It's a it's a cleaner, safer way to get the desired product, which is a, a lighter face, a lighter body. Um, because, and this isn't just unique to India, it's also even in the U.S. within diasporic community. Like, I grew up in a South Asian mm-hmm. community in the suburbs of Chicago. These ideas around skin color were so, they travel transnationally, you know? And so I always grew up thinking that lighter was better, always. Mm -hmm. And you knew that because of the ways that certain people were getting validation over others. As a kid, you pick up on that. You pick up on who's saying who's beautiful or who's, you know, who's saying that who's not beautiful. You know, you, you, you pick up on that. And so those ideas were shaped very much um, by conceptions of beauty that were tied to societal forces like the growing industry um, and historically in in South Asia, for example, the factors that have shaped that. So my research on the skin lightening industry was looking at, okay, you have this advertisement. So these advertisements, I can like lay one out for you. It's like this, this 
my favorite one that I, 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 I have, a favorite Skin Lightning <laughs> <laughs> commercial, is this woman. She is presented as darker. You know, she's, she's, she's probably my skin tone, maybe a bit darker. And she's wearing traditional Indian clothing. And she goes, in, she's with her father, who's this elderly man. And they're looking for the temple because they're dressed, you know, traditionally and they're looking for the temple and they accidentally walk into a, a modeling agency. <laughs> okay? So they walk into this modeling <laughs> agency. This happens so <laughs> <much>. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you just can't, you know. That's every how I got <laughs> discovered. You every know? Indian <laughs> woman I've spoken to has told me this has happened with their father. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very common. Yeah. So they walk into this modeling agency and the, the woman at the front desk is like, oh, she scoffed. She's like, how dare you consider this like you know so basically basically she's like this is not a temple this is a modeling agency for like modern you know this mm -hmm. sort of cosmopolitan and they you can tell from like body language that they make her feel like she's ugly they make this girl feel like she because the woman at the front desk is doesn't e doesn't even look indian to me she looks like a white woman sitting there um and so they they leave and the father's angry he's like oh you know how and he goes into this little toolbox and he gets, he's like, and then at the bottom it says this Ayurvedic technology that's existed mm. for thousands of years um, in this little tube. And it's a tube of Fair and Lovely, which is one of the, um, it, it was one of the famous, most famous popular skin lightening creams in the Asian market. He's like, use this cream. And he basically gives it to his daughter. She uses it. She's the same person. She's like maybe six to seven shades lighter. She start. She wears like a dress or something instead of traditional clothes. She walks back into this modeling agency, and then becomes a model. Is right? this a movie? Like, is this like a sorry, I, I go into way no, too no, much. No, no, no. It's very great. But it's like it's like a whole movie. Like terrible you know, commercial. Like this should be about like the father getting upset, going back and telling the daughter that. Don't worry about this cunt who's like <laughs> making you feel bad <laughs> and like you're beautiful. Like why are you going in your toolbox and like pulling out this like yeah. cream to like but slather your daughter in? That is the model of each of those commercials, right? Wow, so that's like yeah. the so there has been a lot of pushback. Like these, you know, of course there are um, amazing activists pushing against this. There are organizations who have been trying to. So most recently, this company, Fair and Lovely, they're like, okay, 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 we will change our name to Glow and Lovely. Uh. Um, and of course that does nothing but they're trying to appease you know but their marketing is really around this kind of like combination of 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 ho ho holistic sort of approach to the body but also um sort of combining the scientific too where they're like you know we're not just like a you know like a home remedy this has been scientifically backed but we're also not like those toxic products mm -hmm. that people use that could damage your skin this is a natural way to get lighter which you is know like what's crazy yeah. too it's like you're you're talking about like okay these are like south uh, asian cultures and you know you have this premise of like getting lighter which you know you come to you know the west coast and you're talking about like how can we get darker you know mm. it's like you have this complete reversal of Shades, oh, if you will. It's darker. It's tan. It's like right? a, a I mean like yeah, for, for, golden. For people yeah. complain yeah. that, like, oh, I'm so white. I need to go get a well, Yeah, but those know? are, you know, Westerners, not. I know, but like, you, it's the kind of the same premise of, like, if I change, you know, it's still me. I'm a little darker. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I look better now because 
my dad told me if you spray this, you know, the modeling agency we stumbled in mm -hmm. would, would now approve it's like of me. Like, tan like when tanning, with tanning yeah. right? Yeah. So it's like, but what's interesting is the way tanning sort of emerged, it was sort of this leisurely activity, right? So like when you are, when you're the appropriate kind of tan, you, the golden sort of mm -hmm. like olive -y color, um, you signal a kind of, you know, uh, a way in which you navigate the world. You can tan. You can sit yeah. out on the beach. Yeah. You can do. Yeah, isn't it know. showing off that like, hey, you were? It, it shows that like you're traveling. You're going to. Right. You know, you're following the sun. You right. can afford right. to get a tan. Whereas with, uh, you know, but what's interesting is like, you're gonna tan only to a certain degree. You also don't. You're not going to want to adopt you know, uh, black or brown skin yeah. because that comes with other kinds of expectations or like, you know, the other kinds of class intonation. So, you know, with skin lightening, it's like lightening also makes you adjacent to this kind of upper, this, uh, this sort of class mobility, right? So it's like, you know, in India or South Asia, darker skin is not just associated with not being beautiful. It's also associated with the working class. It's also associated, you know, so mm -hmm. so achieving a kind of lightness, the way these advertisements work is they harp on that. They're like, oh, look, you can consume our creams, not just to become lighter, but to become modern, yeah. to become upwardly mobile. And, and there, so I was looking at all those other ideas around beauty that were sort of encapsulated by these ads did yeah, you it's ever like multi-layered yeah. yeah did you ever use uh, these creams when you were younger so i was really blessed that i had parents who just didn't take any of that bullshit i mean my mom yeah they she would so your dad didn't take it to the modeling <laughs> agency <laughs> no. he had no <laughs> toolbox with <laughs> spray bleach in no it, yeah. no i mean good. I, yeah good shout out to your parents yeah <laughs> no they were they were you know but of course they they did you know my mom still says things like you know, she's dark, but she's pretty like mm -hmm. she she hasn't let go of all of it. But I think I never grew up thinking, at least from my parents, that I was, you know, lacking. Yeah. But outside of the home, of course, I mean, there were I have all these memories, you know, of, of the ways that I was sort of and I'm not even that dark, but the ways that I was marked, you know, in our community and, you know, like. I remember there was a wedding I went to when I was like 22. My friend had gotten married early and I went to her wedding and I was sitting next to a friend at a reception. It was a big hall wedding. And so this friend basically was like, no, th so this we were, we were eating or something. She got up and she left. She went to go get something. She comes back a little while later and she's like, oh my God, because I was single at the time. I was 22. She's like, oh my God, I met this um, auntie, just this regular auntie in the, at the wedding. She's like, and she, her son is so-and-so. And apparently they're looking for somebody to get matched up with their son. And she came up to, she came up to my friend, interested in her, because my friend was this beautiful woman, you know. And my friend was engaged. She was a little older, she was engaged. So she's, she's like, I'm engaged, but I have a I'm here with a friend and you should meet her. She's great. She's like, she just graduated from here, blah, blah, blah. So this auntie got apparently excited. So I already knew because I grew up this way. Like, I knew that there was something off. I was like, oh, she hasn't seen me. You know, like, she hasn't. And so my friend's like, oh, let's just go say hi. Let's see what she says. 
and I knew. And so I knew that there was going to be something that doesn't click for this auntie because my friend was also very light skinned and my friend was this sort of very conventional, you know, beautiful woman. And so we go up to this auntie and if you like, I will never forget the look on her face, right? When she sort of just like, really? you know, it was, it was She's really a mean auntie. Yeah. <laughs> but it was, it was funny. It was my, it was something my friend just did not understand. Yeah. Cause she I was, was like light skinned. Yeah. I was like, you, I was like, you did not. Cause she's like, that's not why she wasn't interested. I was like, what else could it be? Everything yeah. else was what I am on paper. Yeah. The only, and she didn't, the auntie didn't ask me one follow up question. And she just said, nice to meet you and like walked away. Right, so she's like here, very yeah. lovely. <laughs> <laughs> really long commercial. So you should yeah. check out this. She sends me a link later. Uh, and get inspired. Yeah. So you know, for me, it was like all uh, all of that is there's no. It's in no way disconnected. Which started like an industry where like we just go and like and like tell people like no, this person is mean. It has nothing to do with like beauty. You know, like we're like the mean police. You know? <laughs> For aunties in particular. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, just in the <laughs> I'll give you a South list Asian community. <laughs> yeah, we're just gonna like we're gonna be the wedding crashers, <laughs> but instead of like sleeping with people, we like grow confidence. Check the aunties. Check yes, the aunties, yeah. Check. yeah. I can, I can, I have lists. You have connections. Lists. Okay, good. I have connections. Yeah, um, but so yeah. So was this something you you were always interested in? Like growing up, because I I know you did you you studied also anthropology. Yeah. Uh, uh, during your undergrad at North uh, Western, Northwestern, North yeah. right, Chicago, mm -hmm. um, did you know you wanted to study, be a cultural anthropologist, kind of study the beauty industry, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, in your community? No, or is I that mean, like in grad school, like was I want? I was curious too to 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 know like, what's up with grad school. Like, was yeah. it something deliberate? Was it something that just kind of you just did because yeah. it was something to do, and then you here you are like seven years later and you're uh, a professor 10 <laughs> 10 <laughs> okay well yeah i mean yeah, if, yeah, if, yeah. if you if you uh, add up all the years that is a question it's so funny it's a question i think about a lot where i'm like why am i here you know like <laughs> why am i doing what i'm doing and it's so funny because i don't know if you both can relate but i just i read this article this is the part where it's like this article in the new yorker that i read <laughs> But I, I, I read this where they actually cited an anthropologist. But the article was about, it was like, why are we so obsessed with all the lives that we couldn't have lived? Mm. You know, like when you think about, you're like, oh, I could have yeah. done this or I could have done. It's like this writer, Joshua Rothman, was like, this is like we're, I don't know if he was saying it was American specific, but he was like, why are we so obsessed with this sort of idea of who we could have been so i've been thinking about this a lot because i'm like i can't remember why i chose to go to grad school it feels mm. blurry to me in this sort of weird way because i think now i'm just like i look back on my life and i'm like it's kind of remarkable that i made the decisions i made because from this standpoint i don't think i could i would have made those same decisions no and, and i think it's interesting because you've been consistent i mean you studied uh, uh anthropology mm -hmm. uh uh at undergrad right and then i mean you continue with anthropology and now you're you know a cultural anthropologist mm -hmm. at, at, at the university as a professor you know yeah. so it's kind of interesting that you've you've kind of kept that line yes yeah um so you don't remember i don't remember why i went to grad school i knew i liked i always loved anthropology and since and i like first and it was a big change it. too because you 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 got your PhD at uh, UCSB. Yes. So that's like coming to the West Coast from the East Coast. Right. right. So there were a lot of things that were going, you know, I, I, 
for me, it was like, I think grad school, I didn't know, I never wanted to become a professor because I didn't know that that was what you did. Like, I just, I was like, grad school, I can read more. I can get paid. Get paid. I can try teaching. I can be in California. It sounds great. Sign me up, you know. Um, if anyone had told me sort of the financial precarity of being a grad <laughs> student for 10 years, then I maybe would have made different choices. But anthropology has been sort of this consistent theme, I guess, because it was the f one of the first classes I took in undergrad that, like, I mean, it's so overused in anthropology, but this idea of centering your analysis from an actual lived experience or centering, you know, starting from the ground and starting from stories to then think of larger, you know, so some of the anthropologists, you know, who are doing incredible work start from stories, but then are also making commentary on how the world works and why is it that people are living in these kinds of conditions or why is it that people are, you know, in this essay, like, why are as hu why is it human nature? We think of it as human nature to always sort of think of what could have been, mm. you know, like, why is that such a, an obsessive question? Um, but for me, anthropology was always interesting because of those meta questions um, and the way that you can access thinking about it through such mundane itty bitty moments. And that's what I thought was really cool about anthropology is you start from like a conversation that you had or like at a beauty salon, something that happened at the front desk and you theorize around that. Mm -hmm. And to me, there was no other discipline that I or any other class I had taken that was starting from something almost boring, like a, just a regular con or like an observation and building something incredible around that. So that's what mm -hmm. was appealing. But this project didn't manifest till grad school. So mm -hmm. in undergrad, I did other stuff. I was like, oh, South Africa. You know, like <laughs> everywhere I was looking, I was like, yeah, I'll do that, you, I'll do that, you, you know. You studied abroad in South yeah. Africa. So, I mean, how does it, where does it go from here? I mean, you you kind of gave us a little trailer of, you know, having a focus on threading or the skin lightening creams, you know, like, where does it go from here? Like, are you, are you continuing? I mean, now that, like, when after you guys finish your dissertation, like, now what? Like, do you yeah. continue to publish? Are you continuing to you know, dive into this? Is it getting more specific or broader? Mm. So I actually want to move away from threading a little bit because for me, I think I'm losing sight of the questions that were really interesting to me that started this whole journey. And so for me, I, I am kind of interested in this larger question of wellness. I think that's been sort of something I've been thinking a lot about um, and something I'm trying to practice. So the way I see my work moving is, okay, maybe I'll have to do some publication with this, the threading stuff. But outside of that, if this is something that I'm expected to do for my entire academic career, I want to have way more like agency and control over what directions it takes. Whereas in grad school, I, you know, your advisor's telling you something, someone's, you know, you're kind of like going with, these other pressures and now I'm excited to you know what is it about this this you know our like our existence that is actually interesting to me and I, I'm excited to explore that in a way that's not you know um, circumscribed by the pressures of academia or whatever and are you so. tying it to any specific cultures or is this just a broad kind of question so I want so I, I 
focused on the South Asian beauty industry, but of course there is no, I mean, they're absolutely, it's not like that's a sort of exclusive enclave that's not, you know, encountered by any other industries. So there is a sort of flow of, of labor, of capital, of ideas, so this idea around beauty. So I'm hoping to kind of still focus maybe on some aspect of race or racialization, but broader than, for example, the South Asian community and broader than, you know, threading, um, instead looking at, okay, what is it about? Why, why are we so, you know, also enticed by difference? You know, whether it's what we're consuming or, or a lifestyle change or a supplement, like there's something mm -hmm. about doing something that feels different but will get you a result. You know, like there's there's something about that that I think is really interesting, and it opens up so many more angles than if I start with, I'm going to talk about threading, or I'm going to talk about. So for me, the hard part is changing that question, you know, and kind of thinking of a question that actually will give me fulfillment as a person, not just as a researcher. Because I think that's the bridge between academia I've always struggled with, where it's like, why couldn't, why shouldn't I do something that also gives me a kind of satisfaction as a person living in the world rather than, oh, this is a great research project to get out publications, to get into conferences, to get, mm -hmm. like that, those markers of evaluation are starting to mean less and less to me, especially because of how competitive things are. And that's, that's my goal. Like, let's see, <laughs> I don't know how you feel at academia. I feel like there is a culture of like, you know, there's so many people who study commodification, but there's also a way in which academia is also such a corporatized yeah. space, you know, and I struggle with my place in that. And so that's a very long answer to your question. <laughs> but this <laughs> idea that what can I study that is also going to fulfill me in my non-academic self, which is a more important part of myself, mm -hmm. right, that exists. You're saying that you conducted some of your research in India. Um, you you grew up in Chicago, mm -hmm. and then were you born there? Yes. So how is it? How is it going? Like, and I mean, does the like just to relate? Okay, like I born and raised in LA, but in a you know Armenian community. Mm -hmm. So is there like a big Indian community in Chicago? Oh yeah. So when you're growing up in that community and then, you know, then going to India and conducting research, what are the differences, like the nuances to compare between, yeah. you know, the the community in Chicago and then comparing that to, does everything just get heightened a little bit more when you go, you know, to India itself? That's, that's interesting. I mean, so for me, I, so my mom's from Pakistan. And okay. so actually growing up, I went every few years to Pakistan every summer. India, I didn't go to that much until I was older, and that's because I couldn't, um, there, were, there were many reasons, but um, it just kind of switched. And it's easier to go to India in some ways. Um, the parts of Pakistan where my, my family lives in recent years have been a bit more tumultuous, so it's harder to go. But um, So for me, going to Pakistan was like, that was my lit summer, you know, like I would be so mm -hmm. excited to go and like every, you know, my, I loved my family there. I love, and yes, some of those, I, I, I felt that some of those insecurities that I had in Chicago growing up were of course 
manifesting in Karachi or in Bombay. Um, but I think it was weird. I think I kind of, for me, I just accepted it because there were so many other things that distract me. You know, like I had to speak um, in Urdu or Hindi. I had to, you know, be in a totally different urban landscape. There are all these other things I was fascinated by. Whereas in the diaspora and growing up in Chicago, everything's so familiar that I can sort of focus and get like highlight on these sorts of moments that were disruptive. Wherein, whereas in Karachi, everything, yes, there were moments that were frustrating. There were, I picked up on the same things, but there was enough going on that I was able to sort of get immersed in a very different way. Because of course, you're in a different country, in a different city, you don't live there, um, you know? And, and that was, there was a sort of, um, I don't know, like a, a, a different way that I, I was in those. And so India was similar. I went there when I was older. Um, I don't have that much family there, but mostly, you know, people I know are friends. And so it's just, it felt different. And I went as I was older, so I had a critical eye to it. That makes a difference too, where I can go and I'm like, oh yeah, that's bullshit. You know, <laughs> like, and so that is, it's, it's, it's different than I think and as especially a Especially when person. you're visiting your cousins and people that are, you know, similar age or a little bit yeah. older, how they're you know, dealing with these things right. as well. Like, it's it's funny, like, I always remember, okay, like, dealing with the diaspora here, you still have, like, the stereotypical, like, ideas and, you know, the demands placed on children of, like, uh, how to behave, what mm -hmm. to do, you know, the job stick, all those things. And then every time, like, a relative would come from overseas, like, those same ideas would come and just, like, tweaked a little bit just to, like, the heightened mm. you know a little bit more emphasis on everything yeah you know yeah. and it seems like just a little bit more backwards every time it 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 occurred you know yeah and then traveling to like lebanon and traveling to armenia you see like you know uh the perspective that you're taking with you like no one's challenging those things mm -hmm. as much you know i mean it, it has evolved like over the years like obviously too yeah. so it's it's interesting to you know go back and forth from yeah, the communities from a diaspora and then go to the actual like motherland, right, and, you know, right. compare. There's all these sort of like, you know, with the diaspora in, in um, diasporas, whatever, in Chicago, you know, there was this idea that you kind of get, s you're, you're bringing so much with you and you kind of, those ideas become sort of um, immortalized. Like they, whereas what's happening in India and Pakistan, it's different, it's moving. It's like, you know, those ideas are, are like you said, they're like flowing, they're evolving. So I remember in Bombay, I went to see one of my, uh, we became friends in recent years because we met after so long. She, I went to her and I was just used to having kind of a, a not a double life, but a life where like, oh, around my Muslim friends, I'm gonna, I'm acting this way. And then with my non-Muslim friends, I'll be like, you know, and that was just the uh, part of life, you know, like I was <laughs> like, modeling. Yes, yes, right. Parsley. Those words were kept, were, the worlds were separate. Um, so I just had this, my Muslim identity was, I didn't think about it critically. I was like, oh yeah, I'm just going to be this way with them. And I'm, you know, not like I was a totally different person. But when I went to India and I was in Bombay, my friend, they're also Muslim. Like she did not have those separate spheres. You know, like she, she didn't have like uh, a, conflict. a conflict and it was, I was like, that to me was, I was blown away by it. And I was like, oh, is that like a uniquely American thing where you're juggling like your culture in the context of like, you know, this dominant, you know, white American sort of, you know, 
is that that tension that makes you hold on to something even if it's not existing in the same way in, yeah. in South Asia or wherever you know and so I think when I went she was like yeah let's go like you know she was like drinking and going out and I was like oh my god like your parents <laughs> know like you like you know like it was just so funny to me where I was like this is I'm just so I've normalized this kind of like this idea that culture is stagnant yeah. you know it like in the U.S. it reminds me of Rami right he yes very yeah, yeah yeah this kind of conflict that he has mm -hmm. and then he goes back to Egypt I mean the show yeah Rami, yeah yeah and 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 he sees his cousin you know just partying and and, and wanting to be more yep. Americanized yeah. he's exactly, talking about yeah. like the like revolution yeah, like yeah he's like, like, like no one wants to talk like about <laughs> it here you know I love that yeah, yeah. but no. it, it is funny like what you're saying because here um you do kind of create your own like personal rules of like you know let's state like greetings right and i mean like we go and like i you kiss everyone on mm -hmm. like both cheeks and like i'm so used to do like i would do that with like non-armenian people they're like, like <laughs> what are you doing you know we have a we have a we have a uh, bengali friend and i remember like us going to their house and he had you know a bunch of people there like we were like i was meeting too and you know like my thing is like I'm gonna go like ki kiss everyone and, like you know they're they're Muslim and like you know I'm going to like this guy is like newly like wife you know I'm, like kissing <laughs> they're like what the <laughs> fuck are you doing it's like, sorry <laughs> you know but like you know <laughs> like I I remember making the decision of like no this is what I do so I'm gonna continue to to do it you know but yeah, like I guess yeah. you know like you forget to be mindful like in other mm. you know situations but um you know, you s you do set these rules of like Armenian friends. You act this way with yeah. the non-Armenian, like you are gonna act a, a different way. Mm -hmm. You know, and until someone shows you or you see that behavior modeled that you don't need to do that, it's like it's very like r you know, like uh, you get the sense of like relief almost. Yep. You're like, oh, okay, like I can be <laughs> yeah. like wherever I'm gonna be. Yeah. So. No, that's and that's part of like I've I've talked uh, last yeah, time. I was, I was gonna ask you about last yeah. time we hung out. You were talking about. You were thinking a lot about identity, mm. you know, as it pertains to to, to yourself. And right. I mean, my so I've always been in this complicated relationship with not my Muslim identity, but with Islam as a sort of, like for me, I've never, I've always claimed Islam or like I've always claimed being Muslim. Like that was an important part of my identity. I never wavered on that. But I was always made to feel like because I did X, Y, and Z things that I wasn't appropriately Muslim. Right. That I, d I didn't conform to a kind of practice that was expected of me, you know. Um, and so for me, I always struggled. Like I remember growing up and people in my community, I heard through rumors that were circulating that people were saying that my family's not they're Like we're Muslim by name. Like we're not mm. actually Muslim. And I was like, what is that? And as a kid, I was like, what in high school? I was like, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to not be Muslim enough? You know, and so those ideas persisted through college. And it's funny because, <laughs> you know, with my therapist, of like all people, she's like the one who's she's not Muslim, but she's become like my spiritual <laughs> coach because I'm just I'm struggling with these questions where I'm like, why is it that I so I've always wanted to claim this and I feel like I have, but I've always been told that I couldn't, you know, in some ways, because so for me, it's like I, I've. Uh, there's a kind of spiritual unanswered spiritual questions that have become sort of my focus now where I'm like you know what does it mean to be Muslim in a context where I'm told I'm supposed to be Muslim in these ways right because that is what the religion says or that's what faith says and I'm learning that actually 
that's not what it says. And there's so much beautiful literature out there that actually sorts of, you know, ask these deeper questions about meaning and existence that rules and like these kinds of the rule-based practice was so unfulfilling to me. And so for me, that's been a recent question. And I think that ties into this sort of this conflict as a diasporic person, this, you know, where you're either like, you know, struggling to figure out not just belonging, but also what fulfillment is for you. Like, is it important to be like, I have cousins who are, you know, uh, they went a different route where they couldn't find that place. And so they're like Trump supporters, you know, like they <laughs> went like a different place. But for me, it's like that Proud was, yeah. <laughs> they were at the Capitol. Um, but as for me, that was, that wasn't even a question. Like I was never going to, cause it was, a mo it was also like a prideful thing where I was like, how dare you tell me that I can't claim this, you know? And how dare you tell me that this is how I need to be? And so, I mean, that, yeah. that seems to occur in, in every, anything that can be, you know, organized as a, as a group, you know? from religions or even like you know uh, in like academia right mm -hmm. like they tell you like hey like you're you have to do this to get you know uh, your professorship and then you have to you know th be this involved with the with the with the university yeah. you know or with like a religion you're saying if it's like rule-based you're saying like if you want to be part of our team you have to wear this color and right. you know abide by uh, abide by these rules you know and i think it's just the type of person some people like that you don't want to you know some individuals they don't want to think too much about things oh i have the rules set for me i just you know follow that guideline mm -hmm. you know a template that's already set for me and you know i just go about my life with that other people who are actually what faith is about you know like philosophizing and thinking about you know spirituality and wellness and who you are how you fit in and all this is is that pondering mm -hmm. right and if you have that inclination to be curious and ask questions, you know, you're automatically be looking at the rules and be like, well, okay, what does it mean? I, I, I can't claim this, you know, even if I want to kind of do it my way and if it's benefiting you to do that, it's, it's, it's very interesting. Yeah. But it seems to happen in like any, any group, any, <laughs> any setting, yeah. you know. Because how are groups maintained? There's yeah. there are certain customs, there's norms, there's rules, exactly. there's conventions, you know, um, and those are socially and culturally culturally kind of created, right? And so this question I'm seeking is like, when you put all of that stuff aside, what is the essence of this? You know, what is actually like? And what I'm learning is, you know, a part of Islamic practice is is actually critically reading the texts so it's not following the rules necessarily it's it's i should say it's not stopping at following the rules like once you follow the rules you're you know because i know like tons of shitty muslims who don't drink who pray who fast mm. but they're shitty people you yeah, know and for yeah. me it's like i could never reconcile that and in recent years i've met also really w like exorbitantly wealthy muslims who have a kind of an understanding around wealth that is to me a little troubling with how you know yet they practice they fast and so for me i'm like that also seems unfulfilling to me yeah. like i'm not trying to aspire to somebody who follows the rules that seems really weak in terms yeah. of like a spiritual practice 
And so for me, it's led to what we were talking about last time, these questions of like, okay, so now what? <laughs> like once you have all this. Do you think it's going to let like lead you only towards questions that well, surrounding Islam? Do you, do you, do you, are you open to, to seeing other possibilities uh, that may kind of allow you to obtain certain fulfillment, you know, or, or, or space? to kind of um, navigate these questions mm. uh, that uh, and you know yeah. that, that you have and, and I think it's something that you were uh, alluding to earlier that you would want to ask these questions mm -hmm. uh, as it pertains to your work that also kind of fulfills the per the, the personal space yeah. and merges with the with the professional one yeah. too that is yeah that I mean but this entire podcast can be like a conversation that you can anthropologically base, you know, like <laughs> and your next <laughs> research <laughs> on. You just dive in deeper. Yes. So in 2022, <laughs> like my goal is. <laughs> we'll get back to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I think for me, because I've always kept my Muslim identity as something separate from every other aspect. I feel like there's so much for me to immerse myself in within Islam that I just don't know that that itself is going to be a lifelong project. But what I'm curious to figure out for myself is how I have like, like if someone were to ask you, what are your values? You know, for me, I don't know what I would say that sort of connects all aspects of my life. There's, so there's like my political values or like my social values is like, you know, faith, informed values and a project a, s a project for me is to sort of synthesize all of that and say okay what actually do I think is the right way to for me to be here you know and mm -hmm. how much of that is informed by what I think is you know like my politics tell me like okay my politics are telling me that this is how every person should have access to all these things you know like that how can I find that in my faith too? Because if there's a, a discrepancy there, how will I then reconcile that? And so for me, it's like, okay, I need to synthesize all these sort of separate ways in which I've just become used to thinking about my identity. And so that's, I don't know how long that will take, but I imagine it's gonna be a lifetime, yeah. Is there any connection that you've made by thinking and researching about you know these varying topics between um, religion and then how it plays into uh, the sense and I concepts of beauty mm. you know in your that's interesting I mean I am by no means an Islamic scholar I so I can't you know tell you about the text specifically but I mean I think there is something about the fact that like in Islamic I think you know <laughs> I think that it's This is a really interesting question because I'm trying to think of like, okay, this this project that I've pursued, how can I connect it to a something that may have been 
informed by my faith. And I think for me, it, it kind of comes down to uh, a sort of moral code almost, you know, like what, when we consider something to be beautiful, how is that, uh, how can we make that a more sort of ethical or moral practice? And I think part of that is to actually question the forces that, ac that shape what we consider to be beautiful and not. So I think actually, in that sense, it is very much an anthropological question, but also a spiritual one, right? Like, what does it mean? Like, what happens then if we are able to transcend these, you know, um, these ways that we're told to see something? Does that make us better in the long run, right? And ultimately, that, that pursuit is a spiritual one. Just not necessarily, like, Muslim specifically, but I think, like you said, like, transcending um, these kinds of boundaries of faith and instead actually questioning, okay, like, what does it mean to be good um, in a way that also makes you feel good about it, you know? But I don't know. I'm, like, wondering, because, I mean, you're tying it to, okay, societal norms and nuances of, like, taking it from marketing and how that's shaping, you know, our concept of what beauty is and how people should dress and groom and all that. Like, but take that concept and, like, let's rewind before we had these marketing and things. In, uh, in other religions, you have the depiction, you know, and paintings, right, um, that might drive a notion of, like, hey, if this is what I'm idolizing, I'm also creating an image of mm -hmm. what I'm striving to be spiritually and possibly you know physically mm -hmm. as well um that doesn't happen in islam i'm trying to think of like but are there depictions you know in text or historically that are showing or indicating any means of you know the type of individual you know like uh, mm. the physical aspect of yeah you know i mean uh, immediately thinking of like you can't you cannot actually yeah depict the prophet in yeah. any way right yeah. so that already sort of takes out but i mean i think you know like I'm, I'm thinking of for example you know persian poetry or like sufi poetry or there is a lot of reference to beauty but what's interesting is that reference to beauty is not so much like an archetype or like you know uh, uh, you might see references to beauty as um as uh, reminiscent of the moon right and so you can see okay what does the moon look like and does that play but that to me is i think uh, like sufi poetry is essentially about god and finding god and so i think there when people try to read beauty into that i'm like i don't know if it's that simplistic you know but there are representations like when I talk to people about my research, you know, I've, I've often had people say, well, in India, you have all these, you know, there, there's one goddess um, who is depicted as, you know, so black that she's blue, you know, like she's so dark and she's a sort of fierce, uh, this goddess Kali, which literally means black. Um, and so they're like, see, there are representations of dark uh you know, embodiments of beauty and fierceness or whatever. And so I don't really have an answer to that question because I'm like, yeah, that exists, but that's also, you know, it's, 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 
it's so relegated to like this spiritual goddess kind of space i i, I don't know what things were like yeah i mean know. i've never thought about it yeah. as well but i would imagine for like you know, for royalties, maybe, yeah. you know, or people that were able to get, you know, portraits and stuff done, you know, what garments they were wearing, you know, yeah, all that. Yeah. But as t like as as a form of like what physical attributes they had, you mm -hmm. know, like it's it's very interesting. Yeah. To, to I like immediately think of like, you know, Edward Said or yet like mm -hmm. the the pictures of the paintings of the harems and like, you know, and I'm trying mm -hmm. to think like, oh, has anyone done a sort of content analysis of, of, of color and how it's it's depicted in these old works? But yeah, I'm not. That's an interesting question. That's like a like a a question of like origin. Like how do we what has kind of historically shaped before yeah. technology I wonder if there was there was illustrations like you're saying like in these harems of like oh like you know this woman was the most beautiful you know like you know I wonder if there's illustrations of that of like okay what was that in mm. context I mean but they they do and like you know they do in you know uh Japanese Chinese you know uh cultures um th it, it must exist uh, absolutely I just I I don't I haven't, I mean, that would be maybe a, a project for 2025 when we <laughs> get there. We're, we're um, putting a lot of around. We're still around. Like, you know, it's such an interesting thing yeah. to like to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, but then again, like, okay, if it is illustrated, like who's reading those? Well, that's the you, thing. You know, right. Who's getting yeah. access to those? Right, like, it right. doesn't trickle down. Yeah. How far does it go down for you to get the idea? Yeah. You know, and maybe it is a very Western modern thing to think about like, oh, what beauty Mm -hmm. is you know I don't well know also <laughs> because if you look at like or, or orientalist like travelogues right the way that they so like they were depictions of the quote-unquote east but the gaze was actually by people in europe for example right yeah. so it's like when you're that you, i think the question of who is interacting with the image is so crucial because there is an element of exoticism that would inform the way sort of a white European would look at a, a, an image of a harem, right, versus someone else. And so I think that is a, a very essential question to seeing like, okay, what do these depictions mean? Um, who painted them? Who's looking at them? Who's reading them? So yeah, I'm, that's, that's interesting and probably outside of my area of expertise. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's interesting to to know how a cultural anthropologist thinks about these things, right? I mm. mean, uh, um, and I wanted to ask you, like, if if someone were, t I mean, I'm not gonna ask you right now, but like, if uh, you know, maybe a student of yours or or a random person were to ask you, uh, what is a cultural anthropologist? Mm -hmm. How does he or she? Uh, see the world yeah. and, and society and and where is it, where does the value uh lie in in that kind of gaze mm. and that perspective or that exploration that examination of mm -hmm. of, of societies of, of peoples yeah so the way that i explain anthropology is i talk about it in terms of relationships and so what i mean by that when you think of a relationship, you might think of two individuals in their relationship. But it's also about your relationship to systems, your relationship to your community, but also your relationship to ideas. So going back to this article where it was like, why are we 
you know, always thinking about what could have been, he actually quotes um, Clifford Geertz, a, a yeah. very famous, you know, in, in his book, Interpretation of Cultures, where he's like, you know, I'm very poorly paraphrasing this, but um, basically, like, with humans, it's like, we could have lived, we could have led a thousand lives, in the end, we led one, right? And so, mm -hmm. to me, that seems very sort of philosophically just an incredible, like, miracle, right? Like, there were so many things that could have happened, we, but we led one and I think that is what makes anthropology always interesting to me. But also, it's this connection, this relationship to um, to systems, which makes it another question of like, okay, why is it that we're in the conditions we're in? Why is it that there is so much um, sort of you know trauma in the world? And so I think it also anthropology is not like National Geographic. <laughs> it actually has I a purpose and an aim, and if it's done critically and done in, you know, by being informed by in incredible, you know, powerful um, theories coming from like critical race theory or feminist theory or third world, like I think then it could really offer some incredible insight about not just the way people you know, are in the world, but also what informs those conditions and what can be done. So to me, there was always that sort of, uh, the, the anthropologist, like, there's like an undertone, there's this revolutionary sort of thing where it's like, things can be better. Like, we are sort of explaining what it is right now, but they can be better. And so I think that's part of how I would start explaining anthropology. So when I first, you know, in my classes, we first talk about what is culture? What does that even mean? It's like, it was like Webster's Dictionary is like 2015, I think, most overused <laughs> word, right? Like what does culture even mean? And so often people will talk about like communities or relationships or home or, and from there we kind of bridge, bridge out and say, okay, why does it matter? Like why do, why should we even ask questions about why we think or how groups become groups like why do those questions matter and so then you start to build um, into a larger inquiry about you know what this can offer so i unfortunately i wish i had more students flocking to me after <laughs> class like i want to be an anthropologist. after this we here. release well, this you know <laughs> yeah we're gonna yeah. sign up for your classes for yeah. sure. well we're gonna definitely have to get you back on maybe in a few years once you <laughs> kind of dive deeper into these topics we brought up but thank you again this was a pleasure thank you. this yeah. is an honor thanks for yeah. having me on I know there's some more questions i wanted to ask you but yeah, yeah. you know we'll do it uh, yeah. some other time well thanks for having me on you got it all right thanks for tuning in be safe. Foxy, Foxy. <laughs> <laughs>